Hey, Melana Pastori, and welcome to the Tick Bootcamp Podcast. Hi there. So nice to be here. Thank you for having me. It is really exciting to be here with you today. And I'm also excited to uh, introduce to our folks or reintroduce to our folks my co-host today, which is Georgia Wood, who is uh, originally from Australia, and she is now agreeing to serve as a co-host with me today. So Georgia, say hi to the folks. Hi guys, good to be on here again. I'm very grateful to be asked and very excited to hear your story. All right, so we are going to have our international conversation today, focusing on Malena's Lyme disease journey. So why don't you folks um, um, sit back and we're going to we're going to now introduce you to Malena, and she's going to talk to us about currently where she's living and talk to us a little bit about where she grew up. So why don't you start with start with that, Malena? All right. Well, I'm currently living in Loveland, Colorado, and that's. Um, south of Fort Collins, north of Denver. And I grew up in Colorado in the southern part in a beautiful, vast alpine valley, uh, alpine desert valley called the San Luis Valley. And from there, I went to school in Fort Collins at Colorado State. And as soon as I graduated, I zipped off to New York and lived in New York City, Brooklyn for five years, then lower Manhattan for another five years before returning to Colorado again in 2016. All right. So I guess like the first thing that that sort of comes to mind for me is, is wondering what it was like to be an Italian kid in Colorado. Uh, were you like the only Italian family in Colorado? And did you have to come to New York to find your people or, or were there others? I know, right? I get asked that a lot, actually especially when I relocated to New York, it, it came up. Um, my father's family were Italian immigrants. They settled in Boulder in an area called Sunshine Canyon with a few other Italian families and kind of made this little community there. But of course, I grew up several hours away from Boulder. So there were a few other kids in my school, you know, that had Italian heritage, but Definitely when I got to New York, I was with my peeps. And, um, you know, when I was living in lower Manhattan, I was basically right in Little Italy. I lived in Nolita, which is which means north of Little Italy. So that was wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> so talk to us about what it was like growing up in Colorado, not just as an Italian American, but, you know, as 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 a kid growing up, what were you what were you dreaming about? What did you think your calling was from the kinds of things you enjoyed doing during your childhood? Yeah, I probably always was jumping from one thing to the next in terms of my dreams. Um, you know, for a period of time, I wanted to be a veterinarian, but then I realized that I couldn't handle the pain and suffering. I was too compassionate and empathic of a person. So, um, yeah, you know, and then at one point I thought I'd forever be a horse trainer because I grew up riding horses and just couldn't imagine doing anything else. But by the time I got to college, um, I decided I was going to pursue a career in marketing and public relations. So that's what I did for a period of time. But I will back up to, you know, growing up in Colorado and what that was like, because that was part of your question. Um, I grew up in a small town. It's hovered around a population of 5,000 for forever. Even to this day, it hasn't really grown much. Um, but you know, it was very safe. Um, my my parents could drop me off in town and let me rollerblade and go to the pool. And 
um, just, you know, have a fairly carefree upbringing. Um, as I mentioned, I was lucky to be able to ride horses because it was in an, a rural area of Colorado. So possible to have a little bit of space and land to raise horses. And I was involved in 4-H. Um, and in terms of like school, I, I really loved being an active student. I got really involved in science there and um, just was always pursuing different activities through school. Um, and over time, I just developed a bunch of different skills. And, and in college, I was working for the radio station and um, I was DJing at night. And, you know, then I had also my little side gigs, like working at shoe stores and things like that. But um, by the time I graduated college, I was, I was really eager and hungry to pursue an exciting career in New York City. And I was extremely fortunate because the first job that I landed um, was one at Condé Nast. So, you know, I kind of went from like being this little in this little rural town to going to a bigger college and kind of a bigger community and having that exposure and then ending up in New York City working at, you know, in four times square with all this hustle and bustle and excitement. So it's been um, a really really interesting journey so far. You know, so Melina, in any environment you find yourself in, there are going to be dangers, right? And uh, one of the things you talked about was how lucky you were to, to grow up in a very safe environment where your parents could just drop you off out of the car and let you roll away to the, you know, to a, a particular location. And of course, that's something we New Yorkers would never do with our children, right? Because there are different types of risks that we have here. But I think one of the risks that we have in common, certainly, you know, I grew up and I live on Long Island and, and, and I grew up on Long Island, despite being born in New York City, I, I did grow up, uh, you know, in, in suburbia. Uh, we all had ticks as part of our experience, certainly those of us who grew up in, in rural environments. And you know, one of the things that was starting to cause me to cringe as you were sharing with me some of what your desires were or some of your experiences were is that is that we know that veterinarians actually have the greatest risk of contracting Lyme disease because of all of the contact that they have with, with uh, you know, the animal population, right? We, we know from this podcast that many, many of our, our, our past guests um, contracted Lyme disease uh, because of their passion for equestrian sports, right? That there are a lot of, uh, a lot of ticks on horses and, 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 and equestrian um, athletes often find themselves contracting Lyme disease. So talk to us about not, you know, you already shared with us that at least as it related to human threats, they were very few in Colorado where you grew up, but of course, ticks and tick diseases were a real threat. And were you prepared for that either during the course of the time that you were engaging in your equestrian activities or when you were preparing for a potential career as a veterinarian? Yeah, you know, I remember when I was educated about ticks and Lyme disease, um, I mentioned that I was big into 4-H, which is, which is big in rural communities. And every year I would go to something called the conservation camp, where you go for a few days to this um, little lodging, like little cabin community where you hang out with other kids and learn about nature and all these different things. And I remember learning about ticks and the fact that they carried Lyme disease and it wasn't something you wanted to get. It could make you very sick. And 
So I always, in my mind, I always associated ticks to be with the forest and with like the mountains. I had no clue that they were in the grass. Um, and so actually when I relocated to the East Coast and was going on hikes and um, going to the beach and, you know, gallivanting through the, the grass, I really had no idea that I was even at risk because I just, in my head, I was not in an ecosystem that was, you know, going to have ticks. Um, and I also never, never knew how small that they could be. Um, and I never knew that they also carried many other diseases besides Lyme disease. Um, and of course, here in Colorado, although there are risks, and yes, it is to a lower extent than the East Coast. Um, unfortunately, people kind of um, perceive ticks and and kind of live, you know, and and recreate without much concern because there's a belief that really nothing out here exists and that getting bit by a tick is not of any concern. Um, and so, you know, in my experience, um, I was bit by a tick at a quite a young age, but I didn't even know that that had been a tick because in my mind, I remembered it as being an earwig. And I had had other people in my family tell me that earwigs do attach. And it wasn't until 2020 that I was sitting outside and this little earwig cr crawled up my leg and pinched me and it fell right off my leg. And in that moment, I thought that was not an earwig that bit me all those years ago. And I don't know if it was an adult that told me it was an earwig or if that was just my the way that my mind remembered it, because I have a very vivid memory and I still have a scar right here to this day where where, I was, where, you, where you were bit by the tail. Where I was bitten. Yes. And it was in Boulder, Colorado. And I was playing in my grandmother's yard where we would run in the grass and, you know, climb trees and all this. And there was a bug on me that I couldn't wipe off, you know, and I, I remember starting to panic. And I remember all my cousins gathering around me as my grandmother took out tweezers and a match, which the old school way of doing things, which we now know is not the good way to do it. Um, so it wasn't until all those years later that I realized that that was my first and only known tick bite. I could have been bit on the East Coast unknowingly. And I do have some memories of th some things that could be potential, you know, moments where I got rebitten out, out there. Um, but it wasn't until all that time later that I realized what had happened because that, you know, and we'll speak more about epiphanies, but that was when the epiphanies you know, as you go through this journey, you have all these moments where you have lots of epiphanies like downloading. And because at that time, that's when I started de developing these super debilitating migraines, you know, the type that make you blind, vomit, you know, you can't stand your, your head feels like it's in a vice. Like I, I remember wishing for death as, as like a five and six year old. Um, and I remember getting sick during, you know, at school. And I remember getting sick on family vacations, like we were at Disney World and I got a really terrible migraine and my parents had to come back from an activity they were supposed to be doing to like rescue me. And yeah, so, you know, just, just lots of epiphanies. And 
at that point, it's hard, it's impossible to say if that's when I contracted Lyme specifically, but I did contract something like no doubt my life started changing dramatically after that. Okay. And we're going to, we're going to build out the Lyme piece of this and what it means to contract Lyme and, and how our body harbors this and our immune system can manage it. But let, let's, let's, let's walk it back a little bit to 4-H, right? Because uh, we here in New York do not have 4-H. I don't know what 4-H is. I've heard about 4-H, but what I think is really cool about uh, 4-H is it is an educational program, right? And we largely find 4-H in, in rural communities. And you did receive at least an awareness of ticks and tick diseases from 4-H. But I, and the reason I want to focus on this is there is a huge difference between awareness and actionable awareness, right? So you were in a in a, a program that was teaching you about agriculture. You were in a program where they introduced you to ticks, and you're in a program where they let you know that this was something that you should be aware of, but it wasn't actionable to you, right? I mean, you 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 didn't have at that point an epiphany about a prior tick bite. And then you when you left the Colorado frying pan and you came to the New York fire where we have ticks everywhere, despite having the, you know, the educational information you had, you didn't have the ability to protect yourself from being reinfected. Right. Yeah, there is very little knowledge about what to do properly. You know, there was, especially when it comes to prevention, um, just the importance of using prevention and doing very thorough tick checks, um, what to do if bitten, um, what to do if you start to get sick. Um, and out, out in New York, it, you know, it wasn't a topic of conversation amongst my friends when we would go on hikes, go to the beach, go camping. Um, you know, I was more concerned for my dogs than I was for myself. And I was applying things incorrectly. Like I remember I was going to hop the train to somewhere upstate. I, my mind, you know, sometimes things blur together, but I was headed somewhere upstate, um, probably like Bear Mountain or something like that. And I was applying the the tick prevention to my dogs on the way there. And that really wasn't going to be very helpful because it needed to be applied at least two days in advance. You know, so just, and that was like, if I was actually trying to do something at all. Um, a lot of times I think I went out with completely no protection, um, not not realizing it's, it's just crazy because you say I, I relocated to the fire of New York, but it was like this fire is burning all around us and no one's talking about it, you know? Um, and, you know, and Melinda, one of the things that, you know, I found so surprising as someone who grew up on Long Island and, and by the way, I have a very aggressive Italian-American mother who made us check ourselves every single day when we went from the outside, when we came into our house. Uh, I literally wasn't allowed in the house until I checked myself for ticks. I mean, but, you know, but we were really in the throes of it. And on, and I, I've shared with folks on this podcast in the past and our listeners on the podcast, in our mudroom, which is the only, ro only room we could be, enter the house from, there was a vat of Vaseline, a... A, tweezers in the Vaseline, matches, um, you know, because like your grandmother, my mother would, you know, my mother would, of course, burn the tick, but not on us, thankfully. What she would do is she'd pull the tick off of us and then wrap it in paper and then burn it because 
we were led to believe that the only way that you could kill a tick is by burning it. But I know there are a lot of folks who have been on this podcast and that their family members would actually light the tick while it was on them as a way of sort of backing up. But the wives' tale that we were that we were taught was that if you put Vaseline on the tick, the tick would back out and that would be easier for you to remove the tick. And of course, that's not true. We're just giving the tick more time on us to spit more nasty germs in us. But that's, you know, that's what we were, that's what we were told would happen with the Vaseline, right? So we all had these little techniques that, you know, that we were taught that unfortunately were not helpful, but at least, at least from my cultural experience growing up, uh, we were very tick aware and we were always checking for ticks. So I found many, many, many ticks on me. My siblings found many, many ticks on them. We found a gazillion ticks on our dogs because we were constantly checking. And as a result, um, you know, it was less likely that we were going to get sick because we were always checking, right? right. So because Lyme disease is a disease of exposure, uh, and, 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 and in most cases, it's because of a tick bite, there are other ways, and we'll talk more about that as well, that, that tick, uh, tick diseases can be transmitted. Um, but in your case, you were bitten as a five-year-old, and you had a lot of symptomology that I'm sure you now know from you've already shared you've had these epiphanies where as you've now gone through your memory bank and as you've looked at these experiences migraines are very very common in the Lyme community and you were having migraines uh, which were triggered shortly after your tick bite and you had them for many many years uh, without it ever having been diagnosed as Lyme disease. Right. So talk to us about how your health sort of pivoted during your childhood uh, to the time when you went to college. Uh, it sounds like you had your ups and downs uh, from the standpoint of physical and emotional health. And distinguish those two for us. Were you, what kinds of uh, mental health challenges were you dealing with during your childhood? Or what kinds of physical health challenges were you dealing with during your childhood up to the time you went to college? Yeah, so in terms of, like I'd say one of the more difficult symptoms to deal with through my adolescence into my young adulthood was the neurological and cognitive stuff. Um, just being like on the verge or on the edge of having a migraine at any moment, you know, like any, anything could push me into a migraine and um, just trying to use what little information was available at the time on how to prevent migraines and how to treat them. And at that time, there really wasn't the, the really good, effective migraine medication. Um, you could just really just treat the symptoms or just get through it, you know, just survive through it, really. Um, so that was difficult, you know, with school. And like, as I mentioned, I was very, very active. So like when I would do science fair, um, it would be stressful because I could possibly get a migraine and it would like make me incapable of participating in the science fair, you know, which was like really important to me. And, and same thing with like all the sports and everything like that. But um, my physical health was a little bit more manageable at that time. Um, I was going through what I would just say is like strange things, like weird bouts of fatigue complaining of not feeling well, but not really understanding how to articulate it. Um, and then my emotional health um, and mental health, I started to deal with things like probably starting my freshman or sophomore year of high school. 
And that's when I just started to experience like um, anxiety, depression, um, just feelings of like overwhelm. And sadly, that really continued to spiral, you know, as time went on. And I never really got the right help for that. Um, so that component of everything got quite bad. And, and that probably got, that got really bad before my physical health got bad later on. Yeah. But give, us, give us some more details about the, the uh, emotional challenges that you were trying to manage. You said, you said you had anxiety. What did the anxiety look like? Meaning what was the, the voice in your head constantly, um, you know, say things to you that caused you to believe that you were going to be uh, in a threatening environment? Um, what did the depression look like? And, and how was your family um, reacting to your, your emotional challenges? Meaning were they giving you help or, or were they, uh, were they just trying to, you know, trying to just help you through it? Yeah, you know, I think through the years, I didn't mention much to my family. Um, I, for different reasons, some which I'm aware of, and some which I'm unaware of still, because I'm still always figuring things out and like, understanding myself and my journey. But it wasn't until much later, um, when things got to a pretty critical point that my family became aware of what I had been dealing with. Um, so it was really something I, I kept to myself, because I think when I had tried to open up about it to, to different people, like maybe a friend or something like that, it didn't go very well. And I ended up feeling worse. I regretted opening up about it. So then I, I think I just chose to keep it to myself. And it is something that can be very difficult to articulate. Um, so there's that part of it too. And of course, if people haven't been through it, it's hard for them to understand it also. So there's all these reasons that go into why you choose to keep these things more to yourself. But um and, and you know, are, think, were there any were there any cultural issues, um, you know, any familial cultural issues? So, for example, again, I, I, as an Italian American, I can tell you that you know that therapy was not a part of our culture. It was not something that was offered to people who were who were either anxious or depressed. And, and, and in fact, even when my grandmother passed away, uh, we tried to encourage my mother to uh, to seek therapeutic intervention, and she's like, "I'm Italian." We're not crazy. We don't do those kinds of things. So were, were there, was there a cultural overlay for you as well? Or was it just purely, you know, your decision uh, to to sort of suffer in silence because you didn't want to stress anyone else out? Right. Um, I think it wasn't so much of a cultural influence on my family per se, even though, you know, my family isn't isn't an emotional type of family. Um but there's definitely not any negative stigma um, about these things. Like my family is very understanding of what needs to be done in order to work through things. But I would say maybe it was just more society at large. Um, and also just kind of feeling like this was something that once you share it, you can't go back, <laughs> you know, and, and, uh, you know, Unfortunately, we live in a world where you get labeled with things and, you know, mental health has um, 
trans like really transformed and evolved and there's it's much more open and accepting currently and and I think a lot really happened in the past say five years especially um and back at this time um it just still wasn't something you could really safely open up about and yeah you know I I honestly I really will need to sit and think about like what are the reasons I kept it to myself so much because I realized that I still don't fully understand that um but probably part of it was shame a lot of shame yeah so let's talk about let's talk about anxiety um because I want to challenge you on one of the things that you said which is that um that if you haven't if you haven't had it, you don't understand it. And I'd argue that every single human being is anxious. Every single human being has had to manage anxiety. But let's first define anxiety. One of the one of the uh, personal development folks that I that I've studied um, argues that anxiety is suffering in the present for a future imagined event, and that our brain is a binary brain that has survival software. That's and our mind is just constantly looking for threats. And what happens is, you know, when we we are not aware of the way our brain works, our brain is going to be looking for threats. And if it can't find threats, it will imagine threats, and that's what will cause us to be anxious. Do you accept that definition that anxiety is suffering in the present for a future imagined event that's triggered by our survival software, or would you define it differently? I, I believe that's one part of anxiety one manifestation of it or one root cause of it um yes anxiety can be very very attached to our thoughts which um i'll get maybe a little bit more to that in a second but one thing i was really noticing with myself um is that i was experiencing anxiety like sensations of anxiety increased heart rate sweating nervousness um even when I didn't have any thoughts happening that were related to it. And it, the best way I could describe it is if you drank way too much coffee, you know, even a very healthy minded individual with very healthy mental health, if they drink too much coffee, it can trigger anxiety. And then if they attach a thought to that, then it can like manifest into like almost a panic attack because you've got these two things interacting. Um, and, Unfortunately, throughout my life, I had a lot of ma- material to give the anxiety. So I I would often have, you know, go down um, spirals where a thought or thoughts could be attached to it. But I was also experiencing what I would just describe as like a physi- like a physiological anxiety where things were chemistry was changing in my body for seemingly no reason or just like out of my control, you know, like waking up in the middle of the night with like your adrenaline, just like pumping crazy or having like really intense um, panic attacks while you're sitting at your desk at work. Um, And granted, I was pretty much always in a, in a job where I had like very fast paced, very, a lot of responsibility, a lot of pressure, you know, New York is a very pressure, high pressure environment. Um, so all these things combining is, you know, and I, I didn't have the resources to help myself. You know, I, I was doing my best, but as we know, it kind of takes 
extra effort and trying some different things. And I was still very much focused on work and just, um, you know, we live in a world where, where we're just with any issue you, you deal with, there's like this quick fix so that we can stay working, you know, whether it's painkillers, coffee, alcohol, you know, whatever it could be. Um, and I didn't, I was losing the ability to like figure things out, you know? Um, and it was kind of like this slow deterioration over time until I sort of just bottomed out. I, if it's okay, I'll come in there because um, it definitely, it really is that gliding through life and especially, and I think we'll get more into this, but I know you must be living in your twenties around New York city life. So I'm guessing you're in, and that really is, I believe, so much of that. Everyone just hustle, 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 and then you can relax when you get a bit older and get that steady job or steady income and have everything done. It's fine if you're just hustling through your 20s, but when you're dealing something like you and I have gone through, like you can't, and then it's hard enough when you're healthy in your 20s, let alone when you've got a debilitating disease that, people don't understand yet professionals don't understand that but mainly yourself doesn't understand and you don't even know who you are as a person without a voice so I just I want to give you so much credit but like seriously just well done for even being able to go to like office jobs and get through it and just survive through that because it is not easy and I give you so much credit thank you Georgia it it was very hard you know, it was a very harsh world, um, very cutthroat, um, you know, just quite toxic, actually. And that did not bode well for me with what I was dealing with. And I did not have a support system. You know, I did not have a support system anywhere. <laughs> um, so, you know, that's, when I look back on things, I, and this is the help of, of friends who have helped to show me, like, I am strong, you know, um, I think when you're going through this stuff and you're, you're unraveling, like a lot of people try to imply to you that you're weak or that you're, um, a hypochondriac or just toughen up, you know, this and that, and, and you wonder if they're right. You might even believe them that they're right. Um, but if only, if only they knew what you're dealing with, um, which they never can unless they go through it themselves. But, you know, it's it's like there's a lot of stuff that arises on this journey to, to make you doubt yourself because it is not an easy journey. Nothing about, you know, nothing about illness is easy, but then you get an illness that's very controversial. Um, it's very confusing that affects you not only physically, but mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. Um, it is a very, very difficult journey. And, you know, that's why it's so important to just do our best to surround ourselves with the right people. You know, I, I, I do. Right. Sorry, and you, mentioned, you mentioned that you too recently have found yourself surrounded by the right people. And I, I think that's something we definitely talk about because we can be our supporters for ourselves. And it sounds like you've got a little dog too. Mm -hmm. And I believe that I know for me, my little dog helped me. I'm wondering, does having that 
other support that started to get me on that route. And I'm asking, I guess, for you is how did you first, I guess, reach out? Not reach out. That's not the right word. I do have brain fog right now as well, guys. Um, but I guess how is it where you started trusting um, those support systems? Because coming back to the anxiety and the depression, it definitely does help to have that out of, as you said, you it was the friends around you. They were like, hang on, girl, you are strong. You were actually really, really strong. And you can say it as much as you want to yourself. But it also does. It's always nice to have someone tell you that and remind you that, especially with something like this. So I guess it's less of a question, but how would you suggest people to test how they trust those friends or relatives or whoever, doctors? Yeah. Um, it's a tricky question. It is. And, you know, I have to be very honest that most of my journey was quite alone. Mm. Um, it's only been recently that I have connected with healthy people who are capable of supporting me the way that I need to be supported. And, you know, I've always had a lot of compassion for others because, um, yeah, people need to try harder <laughs> to, to get it. I agree with that. <laughs> right. They do. Like there is some onus. Um, but at the same time, it is a very difficult thing to understand. And mm. quite frankly, just people just not everybody has the skill right? Yeah. Like not everybody has what it takes to show up for people who are going through this very complex, bizarre, difficult thing. Um, and on, sorry for interrupting, but I do want to say for everyone, write that down as a man mantra because really not everyone is capable and that is okay. It doesn't make them a bad person. doesn't mean they don't care about you. They, I really like how you just worded that. They don't actually, they may just not have the capability. And that is okay. Write that down and repeat that because <laughs> so many times you can so easily get broken down by that one comment. You're like, oh, wait, no. <laughs> right, right. And people yeah. can have the best intentions and just mm -hmm. what comes out of their mouth is just <laughs> rubbish. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, it, you know, and that's why it there's a lot of education and it can be very exhausting. I remember when I was quite sick, just feeling so exhausted of having to explain things and almost argue with people um, and I'm yes. like why am I arguing because I shouldn't have to do this but you know in in my life in my journey what I had to do and I don't say this is the right thing for everybody it's just was my circumstance I just had to kind of like separate myself because yeah. a lot of people who stepped in to help me unfortunately they ended up causing more harm than good and yeah. um, I just had to like protect myself, really. Um, and that was just my circumstance. You know, yeah. that's just the way it, the, that's just the way timing worked for me. You know, I had just left one place and came to another. I didn't know many people. Um, I don't have a large family. So, you know, it just, it's just the way it worked. And um, it just gave me a lot of time to, to figure things out and it wasn't it was not easy and I had to figure out like creative solutions to things and um you know it it, it is nice that especially similar to like the advances in mental health and not only with the science and understanding and treatment of mental health but just also in 
the acceptance of it and like the ability to be more open about it. A, a very similar thing has been happening with Lyme disease. You know, we still have so much work to do and so far to go so that everyone can get the proper diagnosis and treatment that they need. But it's been, you know, as my journey has progressed, um, I've had like more access to information and things, you know, like just like just the existence of this podcast and having, you know, these conversations, like opening it up and normalizing it and providing a resource and support for people who are going through this. Um, like at the very beginning of my journey, that kind of stuff didn't exist, you know, and it and it felt very bleak and it was very difficult to connect with resources and find ways to like just get that emotional support, you know, and and to to cope with the isolation that comes yeah. with the disease. Um, so George, let, let me let me just walk us back. Yeah, so we have a context, right? Because absolutely, we, we're, no, we're, absolutely. we're on the we're on this we're on a phase of your journey, Melena, where you've you've had uh, you've had a childhood in Colorado where your health, your physical health has had its had had its ups and downs, uh, but you, your your immune system was managing it. Uh, you you had uh, some ups and downs with your emotional health, uh, but you were largely managing that as well. Sometimes a little bit more uh, quietly than than maybe you wish you had, but you were able to manage that. Um, you left the you left Colorado. You came to New York, uh, which is a very different culture, right? Where where you have a very different paced experience, right? Uh, uh, and and of course, you're in fight or flight all the time, right? You know, one of the things we were beginning to explore was your anxiety. Um, and, 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 and part of what I'd like to just pause here for a second uh, is to ask you, do you believe that your anxiety was triggered by your body's response to your then undiagnosed Lyme disease? Meaning you had all these microbes attacking you, right? They were in your brain, they were in your body, they were attacking you physically. And as a result of your body being attacked by these microbes physically, you're, you're, you were triggered into the sympathetic uh, um, expression of your nervous system and that physiological anxiety along with the emotionally triggered anxiety put you in a position where, where um, you were just constantly in fight or flight which you know I'd argue to our, our community, that means you're either fighting, fleeing, freezing, fainting or fawning those are the only five things you can do in addition to being immunocompromised and that is that really where you were when you came to new york and 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 dealing with cultural changes a very different pace in life starting a new career and then of course not being um not being healthy because you had undiagnosed lyme disease right yes i absolutely believe that my, you know, um, emotional, mental health, my anxiety, depression was caused by an underlying infection. Um, and there is, you know, there is a correlation when I map it out. And in addition to the point in time when the, when the mental health issues reached their peak is also when my physical health started to drastically change and um you know i i was trying medications for a period of time and i i do believe that people need to try whatever is available and i am i support 
people in whatever choice they make with how they want to treat things. And, you know, I decided to try medications. Unfortunately, they did not help me. Um, they actually made my situation worse. Um, I'm very sensitive to chemicals. So like my body didn't respond well to them. So it was like, it compounded the problem instead of helping. Because as we know now, if you treat certain types of anxiety with certain types of medications, it's not addressing the root cause. Um, so in my situation, it actually made it worse. And then I had to deal with um, coming off of the medications, which was really brutal for me, a, a very brutal experience. Um, and, you know, as the mental health stuff started to get worse, I was starting to have like higher frequency of flu-like symptoms, um, constant swollen glands, um, really terrible sore throats that were not strep. Um, it got to the point where I could barely make it into work. And I was calling out two or three times a week. Like, you know, it just, and, and I would just come home, go straight to my bed and could barely get out of bed the next day to make it into work. And making it through each day was just terrible. And I, I was taking handfuls of ibuprofen, like literally it's amazing the damage I did to myself with that. <laughs> um, I was drinking tons of coffee, um, like insane amounts of coffee, which, you know, of course these things were not helping me. <laughs> they were compounding the situation and right. making exacerbating, you know, the, exacerbating the fatigue. Right. Right. So I, I now know that now, um, you know, and to answer your question further, you know, as I started to learn about the complexities of mental health, I started to, because for me, I got to this point where I was so suffering, the suffering had grown so intense that I just decided like, I need to try everything I can to heal, to get better. Like I need to really figure out what's going on. And I started to learn about all the different things that contribute to our mental health, you know, our gut health, our environment, toxins, all these things. And that's kind of where I started with um, trying to figure things out. I switched my diet. You know, I figured out all the foods that were bothering me, which were pretty much all foods, because by that point, my body was so inflamed and my gut was so um, damaged that on the food sensitivity test, pretty much every single food was a, an issue for me. Um, and it was quite a journey, you know, like as I began to make all these changes, I was so desperate. So I needed to see improvements with my health and it just wasn't happening. Like if anything, I was continuing to get worse, which was, um, you know, very conflicting and very like disappointing um, for me. But somehow I just continued to, to not to say I didn't have moments of weakness because I had some extreme moments of weakness. Um, but I just kept focusing on figuring things out, you know, just continuing to educate myself, which was hard because I couldn't really think straight. It was very hard to read. It was very hard to have conversations, you know, um, to understand different concepts at times, but I was able to grasp on to just enough to keep going. And of course, um, probably when I had reached another really low point um, is when more doors started to open for me and I started to find 
more answers, which kind of kept propelling me forward into just maintaining hope and determination that, that I was going to get through it. So let's, uh, I, I want to ask you two more questions before I let Georgia take you through the diagnostic journey. How old were you when you finally were diagnosed with Lyme disease? 33. So you, you had suffered, you had suffered almost 30 years before you were finally diagnosed with the disease. Right. Especially starting around 25 is when things started to really get weird for me. <laughs> when was the first time you suspected or someone put on your radar that you were possibly suffering from Lyme disease prior to your diagnosis? Um, you know, because I was dealing with such high degrees of pain and um, fatigue and whatnot, I was starting to see these different practitioners to just cope with things and try to heal. So I was seeing a functional doctor who was helping me to heal my gut and she referred me to a chiropractor. And the very, very first time I saw him, um, just based on what was going on with me physically, and I also opened up about the mental emotional stuff, he just very casually mentioned, oh, you remind me of my patients who have Lyme disease, but don't worry, it's not a big deal. He, he literally said that, but don't worry, it's not a big deal. So how old so, were you then? How, how long before you finally get your diagnosis was that window where somebody was essentially saying, which we hear on this podcast all the time, you sound very limey. Right. That was that was just a few months before I got the diagnosis, or just a few weeks before I got the diagnosis. Okay. Um, yeah. So it was, I had relocated back to Colorado thinking that being here and just resting would just be all that I needed. I made all these changes to my lifestyle, just really started to tap into like living a healthier life, more balanced, but I just kept getting worse and worse and worse. It was almost like the harder I tried, the worse I got. Um, so it was in this journey because I finally started to prioritize my health and started to, you know, see different specialists and whatnot. Um, so I went right back to that functional doctor who was just about to run a, a panel of other tests on me and explain to her what he had mentioned. And she's like, oh, we'll just, we'll tack on the Western blot. Well, there was two miracles there. It was like one that the chiropractor mentioned that because it's kind of a strange thing to mention to someone, you know, and he could have thought it, but not said it, but he chose to say it. And coincidentally, I was in a position where I could go get a test. The other coincidence is that the doctor who is, it's very rare out here to have a doctor who even knows anything about Lyme, but her husband had been healing from Lyme. So she was familiar with the testing and all that sort of thing, even though it wasn't her area of expertise. So when the Western block came back, according to the CDC, I wasn't positive, but she knew that there was those two bands that we all know now have the controversial bands. Uh, bands of the IgG testing. So she knew by looking at my test that I actually did have Lyme. And it was, that was like the first moment that my head just started spinning because she said, according to the CDC, you do not have Lyme disease, but you're going to have to start treatment. And I was like, what does that mean? <laughs> like, I just, you know, and then of course, as we know, the journey begins and you start to understand why there's all these very weird, confusing, um, controversial 
topics along this whole journey. <laughs> exactly where I wanted us to go now, right? Because th this is all coming together for me to ask you one more question before Georgia takes you through the next phase of your journey, which is, how do you define Lyme disease? Or let me ask you the question differently. We here at Tick Bootcamp um, have had almost as many definitions for Lyme disease as we've had guests. Um, certainly the, the, the experts um, have had almost as many uh, definitions. We actually have a definition that we're asking folks to explore with us. So we here at Tick Bootcamp believe that Lyme disease is a polymicrobial, multisystemic, chronic infectious disease. And I would argue that as you were going through describing your journey, uh, that you are, you are the very definition of the Tick Bootcamp uh, or, you, or, or maybe we should put your picture in the dictionary next to the Tick Bootcamp uh, description of, of Lyme disease. But again, I don't want to charm you by saying that. I want your reaction. Do you believe that, the, that we are correct in, this, in, in describing uh, Lyme disease as a polymicrobial, multisystemic, chronic infectious disease? Yes. Um, you know, I, I think there we could get really specific and we could say that it is only Borrelia burgdorferi. Um, but we know now that there's multiple strains of the Lyme bacteria. And we know that there are also various other tick-borne diseases, which can often be umbrellaed or encompassed within Lyme. Each of them has unique characteristics. They've even discovered that very specific strains of Borrelia are more prone to making someone or making someone more prone to the mental, emotional. Well, so certainly, so so really, so you're again, you may be agreeing or disagreeing with me, but you know, so so the CDC definition, of course, is is Borrelia burgdorferi. That is that is Lyme disease, and it could be acute, and it could be chronic, and it could be you know they have all these you know all these other things. We're arguing absolutely not. It is never one bacteria. Mm -hmm. It is never one strain of one bacteria. It is polymicrobially, and you're right. Different symptoms certainly have been connected with current research to uh, different different strains of Borrelia. But then, of course, we have many other microbes, such as Bartonella, right? And we we talk about Bart rage and the impact that that's having, which is again a different bacteria, right? We, we, we have, uh, you know, Ehrlichia, we have Anaplasma, and the list goes on and on. And we know that a tick could harbor as many as 200 different microbes, many of whom we haven't even identified, um, you know, but so, so, my, so my question to you is, do you adopt the CDC definition or do you like our definition better that it's polymicrobial and not just one strain of one bacteria? I adopt your version of that, and it's this—it's a very similar perspective that I have developed over time. And you know, one thing I'll say quickly is—is is that um, you know whether this name Lyme disease is going to evolve into something else, you know, because things always evolve, right? Whether we just start calling it tick-borne illness, which is catching on more and more, vector-borne disease, this and that. Um, let me make sure I turn something off really quick. Um, one reason it's important to kind of be, develop some sort of broad term that does encompass all of these polymicrobial manifestations, as you've put it, is because the testing is so complex. And let's say 
someone gets bit by a tick and it happens to not carry Lyme, but it carries all these other things, like we still need to test for all of those other things. Um, and, you know, the urgency to start treatment is very similar. The prevention is is very similar. So I, I think that even just um, there's reasons to, to start looking at it differently in terms of the polymicrobial component, because there's so much weighing on that. You know, that is very much related to the diagnostics um, and just better understanding how these microbes behave um, in general. Let's talk about the multisystemic piece of it, uh, because uh, you described almost every part of your body, um, you know, suffering from from various uh, various symptoms at different stages. Um, you know, one of the reasons why, uh, you know, doctors would often argue that that people were, um, you know, were not really physically sick, but emotionally sick because they had they had, uh, you know, they had various symptoms at different times right and in your experience you had very different symptoms when you were a child you had you had migraines you had all kinds of other fatigue related symptoms and other kinds of physical symptoms right that uh that were um that were developing over time but not necessarily the same symptoms so do you believe that based on your experience that it is in fact, and you also shared with us, you had your, your, the emotional and the mental health components as well, not just the physiological components. Um, uh, so do you, do you adopt our, our description of the, of the definition of Lyme disease as, as multi-systemic? Absolutely. Um, I think that it starts with, you know, Im immune issues and inflammation issues. And then those just cascade, you know, it, affecting everything else, like nearly every system of your body ends up affected in some shape or form. And you can experience a myriad of different symptoms and, you know, some can come and go, some may become once and never come back again. And then, you know, I think when a lot of people really get taken down is when all these symptoms are happening simultaneously, really intensely. Um, and, you know, it's like as though the physical and, you know, pain, like as, as though the pain and the other physical types of symptoms aren't bad enough. On top of that, you're, you're kind of losing your mind. Um, and reality is not as you used to know it, or, you know, it's the world becomes a very, very different place. Um, and I, you know, I would, I would just say that I, I believe the mental emotional symptoms, although the physical ones are terrible and agonizing, the mental emotional can be really the worst because um, it's just a terror. It's, it's a very agonizing experience to go through like the mental emotional anguish that the disease literally causes. Like, even if you're not going through some sort of thing in your life, you know, that's worth grieving, worth, you know, that sort of thing, this disease makes you experience those feelings right, so how you, it affects your nervous so system do you, and your brain. Do you believe that the disease either in its manifestation physically or as the bugs are in your brain are changing your neural pathways and changing the way that you think? That's part of it for sure. Um, there are you know, similar to it, it, everything changes our genetics, right? The food we eat, the environment we live in, our genetics change over time. 
diseases change our genetics and they change a disease like Lyme disease changes our pathways, as you've mentioned. And um, there's also other things compounding it. You know, you've got detox issues, like when our liver, spleen, kidneys, pancreas are overloaded with toxins, that makes you feel terrible too. And it can make you really irritable and have, you know, mental, emotional stuff. So you've got all these layers of things. For um, sure. So, I mean, so you're, you're, all of your systems are breaking down, you're becoming toxic. And then ultimately we get to the last piece of our, of our definition, which is chronic infectious disease, right? So it, it is a, it's, it's a, it's a, infectious disease that's causing your entire system to 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 become toxic and it ultimately ultimately overloads your immune system which is why you become chronically ill right and 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 that's what happened with you right i mean you you were you were becoming sicker and sicker and sicker and sicker you're becoming more and more toxic there were a number of different factors you know what was making me anxious and i think many of our listeners as they were going on this journey with you and as they are going on this journey with you like when you were saying you you were moving to new york city i was wincing because like oh no you went from like the clean environment of colorado to the really really toxic environment of new york city where you have not just a fast pace, but you have all kinds of environmental toxins. It's a dirty place. It's a place full of microbes and, you know, full of mold. And it's just like full of nasty people. And it's like, you just went from, you know, really the frying pan to the fire and, and your body was just becoming more and more toxic and you went to a more toxic place, right? And that's why we don't call the acute uh, manifestation, Lyme disease. It's not Lyme disease in our view. It's only chronic illness that's Lyme disease. Now, right, we can make the argument, Melina, as some have, that we should divorce from Lyme disease, right? Dr. Alan McDonald, who's one of our mentors, has argued in both writing and on this podcast, we should be divorced from the term Lyme. And I think you were kind of making an arg argument earlier as well, that we should we should be using a different term. My concern with that is, is that there's been a whole world built around that term, right? That has developed over the course of 50 years where there are people who are describing their illness as Lyme disease, millions of them. We have doctors who are treated, who are Lyme specialists. We have organizations built around the word Lyme. Now this podcast is not built around the word Lyme, we're Tick Bootcamp. But it's certainly the focus of our of our of our podcast. So I'm wondering, as a practical matter, do you think we can really divorce ourselves from the word Lyme disease, or should we just do the opposite, take control of the definition of the term the way we are trying to do here at, at Take Boot Camp, and perhaps using you as Exhibit A? Ha, lucky me. Um, well, you know, it, it's just it's like if I could just look into my crystal ball, and it's it's always impossible to say how things are going to evolve. But, you know, I almost imagine that it might be necessary to start a different terminology. And there's another thing going into it is that Lyme has almost become this dirty word. So I'd, if, if, if the term doesn't change, I would like to see a more acceptance of the word Lyme and Lyme disease. You know, it's like, it's like saying you have Lyme disease is, is, is like looked down upon, you know, and um, it, it's just like with a lot of other words and things that exist in our world, right? Like yeah, when they've yeah. been abused over yeah. time, they become like this dirty word. And so if, 
if the terminology doesn't change, I do hope that people don't wince or like walk go like this. <laughs> when, yeah, when no, no, no. They and, find and, out that you have Lyme disease. <laughs> you're, you're, you're absolutely right, but it's not just it's not just people in the community, um, in the general community. It's people in the medical community that are wincing when you come in with a Lyme disease diagnosis, which is the bigger problem, right? Um, so you know look, something has to change. Um, and and I, I and I I you know I'm agnostic about treatment. I'm agnostic about what needs to what what needs to you know what what the approach is. But we have to change, right? And 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 I'm going to continue to beat the drum on just taking control of the term. Uh, but if it turns out that we divorce from the term, I'm just as happy. I'm not I'm not I'm not you know personally invested in that. I I, I just need to help folks understand that we need to change, right? So. Uh, last thing I want to explore with you before Georgia takes you through your, you know, the rest of your diagnostic and then the, the beginning of your treatment journey is, um, is that Phyllis Bedford, who is one of our guests in the past and the founder of the Lyme Life Foundation, argues that Lyme disease is, um, is the supermarket diagnosis disease. She says that more people are diagnosed in the supermarket when you walk up to them and you are uh, describing your symptoms, just like you. I mean, you kind of had a supermarket diagnosis yourself. It was, you know, a chiropractor sort of making a side observation. Hey, this sounds kind of Lyme. He didn't use those terms. But, you know, you, you sound like Lyme disease, right? So it wasn't, it wasn't somebody really, you know, really um, in a, in a uh, although it was in a medical environment, it really was more of a social comment. Um, and, and my argument is that the reason it is a, a disease that's more often diagnosed in the supermarket than it is in a doctor's office is because you all know what Lyme disease is. You know it is a polymicrobial multisystemic chronic infectious disease. So it's easy for you to see the symptoms and say, hey, you look like you have Lyme disease, whereas doctors don't have a definition. They think it's one, you know, it's, it's one microbe causing one set of largely um, you know, arthritic, um, arthritic or rheumatological symptoms, and because they don't have a they don't have a diagnosis, they don't have the ability to, di to diagnose it, right? Because the prism through which they're looking at is limiting their ability to see what's right in front of them. Whereas those of you who've been on the journey see people with Lyme disease all the time, and you're telling everybody you have Lyme disease, and so more people are diagnosed by you in Georgia than by people with medical degrees, right? Um, or, or so tell me if you agree with that, and if you do. Does that cause you to think maybe a little bit differently about maybe what we should be doing is taking control of the definition rather than trying to divorce from the term? Well, I do sort of view them as two separate things. Um, and like I know myself, I've had several people in my life, you know, whether they be friends, family, acquaintances, people I chat with in line at the store who have gotten tested just to rule it out, um, which I which is such a tricky path to go down because testing is not great. So they could still be working to figure things out. You're so polite. You're know. you so polite. Testing sucks. <laughs> you said it. There, you said it. Um, but in terms of how that affects um, like diagnostics or just the supermarket diagnostic? Is that what you're talking about? The term? No, no, just, just diagnose. Look, it really needs to be, you know, one of the things that the CDC does, they're all over the place, right? And we've been, we've been, we've been bouncing around the CDC together, right? Between, you know, what, what, what their, what their definition of, 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 of bands are for you to be CDC positive and 
whether or not it should be a test of diagnosis or a clinical diagnosis, whether it's one bacteria. I mean, the CDC is all over the place. I mean, they're just a they're just a mess, right? So, you know, do we accept them? Do we not accept them? Are they right? Are they wrong? I mean, it's just a disaster, the CDC, right? So, so rather than sort of focusing on what they are using as definitions, let's just stay focused on what the community is doing, right? Because you and Georgia have a better capacity to diagnose people with Lyme disease because you've been on the journey and you know what it is. And that's why you're pointing it out to people in the supermarket, right? So, um, you know, I I'm arguing that if we can open up the prism through which medical professionals are looking at their patients, they're more likely to diagnose people with Lyme disease if they have a definition like the one that I'm arguing, rather than coming up with a whole new term and a whole new way of, uh, of getting folks to think. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I do agree that there needs to be a retraining. Um, it needs to happen quickly. Um, you know, we need to move on from these really, you know, grossly inaccurate diagnostic measures. Um, and I am seeing the term like tick-borne illness or tick-borne disease or vector-borne disease more broadly used. Um, but, you know, if it were to, if everything were just to be encompassed under the, the term Lyme, I see really no issue with that. Um, but as I, I, I just kind of feel that because it's, it's, the landscape is changing so drastically and we're learning so much that I just, you know, I don't know what it is, but I have this feeling that the term just might evolve into something else on its own because it's just, it's just the way it's, it's unfolding. Okay. So, so you're being polite to me and I appreciate that. So let's move forward. Right. So folks, we are, we're now, we're now at the stage of uh, Melena's journey where, where she is now, uh, she's now back in Colorado. She left dirty, toxic New York City, and she's now back at home. And she's finally been diagnosed, uh, although not CDC positive, still diagnosed with Lyme disease. And now George is going to take you through the rest of this portion of your journey where you're now treating for Lyme disease despite not being CDC positive. Beautiful. Okay, good. I just need to make sure I was unmuted. <laughs> um, so I guess my first first question that comes up to me is when you moved back, um, you knew you did, so my, as again, brain fog, um, you did know you had Lyme at that point or that's when you got diagnosed when you were moving back to Colorado? Um, things in New York were just getting really difficult for me. Yeah. And, you know, it was becoming clear that I couldn't work anymore. And um, it just seemed like I just needed to take some time off. So it's yeah. like, oh, go back to Colorado, you know, take some time, take a month or two and you'll bounce right back. Um, that yeah. it took about a, like a year and three months before I actually had my diagnosis after getting back to Colorado. Yes. Um, that's what I believe. My main question behind that was that there was another year of being out in the grass, being in that era. You may have originally gotten that tick. There was maybe not the looking into what just, is there mold in the house that you moved? Like, I guess that was my question behind right. it. Right. So then a year in, after you went to the chiropractor, you said it was just a couple of weeks after he had mentioned, you got the diagnosis. What steps did you take after that? And like, what sort of path? Because it's there's so many elements, as we've talked about. It could be the dietary right away or like the saunas or 
it also comes in with it sounded like you were having to call out of work. So how did you get that massive like news and then be like, right, I'm now going to try and process this and start on this trial error journey is what I like to call it because it is definitely the definition of trial and error. <laughs> Absolutely. Trial with error. With growth. Right. With, with growth. growth. <laughs> yes. <laughs> There's always that little whoop at the yep, end. Yeah, you gotta do it. <laughs> um, yeah, trial, error, roller coaster, you know, experiment. Um, yeah, like, you know, I, my, as I mentioned, my head just really spun when I had the diagnosis because it was really difficult for me to understand how, like, I technically wasn't testing positive, but that I did have the disease. Um, and of course, I better understand that now, but my, you know, leading up to the diagnosis, I had started to really um, implement a lot of healing modalities into my life. So, you know, I, I figured out my food issues. I changed my diet. I stopped using chemicals. I just prioritized, you know, meditation and just healthy activities. I stopped consuming alcohol, all these things. Um, and at that time, I, I had moved to a very moldy place. Um, Fort Collins, Colorado had been mm-hmm. flooded multiple times. And I was living in this area that's kind of down in, in this gulch surrounded by, it's like a, in a lower elevation. So it had been flooded multiple times. And I do also suspect that that's around that same time I contracted West Nile virus. Um, I'll never know when that happened because I, I only got tested after the fact. I, I never knew when I had the acute infection based on testing, but that's what I suspect kind of like sent me over the edge of like no return. (laughs) Um, cause you know, things were getting progressively and progressively worse. And then suddenly they just like dropped out from underneath of me. Um, if you don't mind me asking and you can definitely says too but like when you say dropped out I know you also said you had a quite a t- small support system if anything if anyone were you doing most of this research and self-healing apart from the one or two doctors you're working with pretty much by yourself yes wow. yes and yeah. the first couple of doctors that I worked with were willing to help me and they had good ideas and whatnot but neither of them were Lyme literate by any means Um, you know, the first one or the first one that I started with, with the actual treatment, like the, the antibiotic or like immunological treatment, um, had me do like some heavy duty rounds of doxycycline, but there were other components of the disease that she just didn't get. Like, I remember, you know, coming across a little, at that time, it was just a little tidbit of information that was like tuning into the mental, emotional um, issues of the disease. And it said that, you know, up to that point, it was believed that only strep could cause PANS or PANDAS, but they're now discovering that other infections are causing it as well. So I remember going to her with the article and saying, I, this is what's going on with me. This is what's going on with me. So she had me take a strep test, which came back negative. And she literally told me no strep, no PANDAS emphatically. Um, so, she, you know, they each kind of took me as far as they could, which wasn't far. 
Um, I had like a major, major relapse after my first round of treatment. Um, but to answer your question, I was going through it alone. I was driving myself to my appointments, you know, going through um, sleeping all day to insomnia for days and that, you know, just the, the differences in the sleep and the energy. Um, and just, you know, where I had worked myself into because as I was getting worse, I didn't know what was going on. So I think I developed a lot of self-blame. Um, you know, I think I I figured that whatever I was going through, I caused, I deserved it somehow. Um, so because of that, you know, in this unfortunate way, I really closed myself off. Um, in addition to the fact that not a lot of people in my life at the time were capable of stepping up to support me in the way that I needed. Um, thankfully, you know, I had support in terms of covering my living costs and paying for my doctor's bills. And I, you know, I didn't have uber fancy doctors, but as we know, this treatment's not covered by insurance. So a lot of it was out of pocket. And so there was ways that I was getting support, which I'm so grateful for. Um, but yeah, you know, unfortunately I, I was on my own um, for for different reasons. And one just being that it just was the better route for me to go. No, absolutely. absolutely. And I truly believe with everyone's Lyme journey, we all have things in common, but we also very much, all of us are so different. And I really do believe it is what's happening in your life. That does because stress triggers mainly on sides. Um, I definitely... After you've done that, you said um, you did the big dose of antibiotics and then it got really bad after that. Um, what were your steps after that? Did you want to go back to the antibiotics and give it another round or were you just like, I need to do the holistic side or mix of both? Or what were your next steps after that kind of big doubt after? Yeah. Um, you know, the, the antibiotics ended up being pretty intense for me. Like, a, with like the die off and just, you know, the Herx reaction that you get from, from that. And then because I'm super sensitive to like pharmaceuticals and just also like the damage it did to my gut, it just seemed like, um, you know, to take a step back, like a lot of treatments can come with difficult side effects. And that's sometimes just the way it is, like even the most natural, you know, um, options can come with some difficult things because cleaning this stuff up and treating it isn't pretty. It's, it's an ugly job. Um, so you're, you're going to go through some stuff, but I did feel that just um, the other things that were caused by the antibiotics weren't worth it to me. So I did decide to start to pursue other things. Um, you know, I began to study the work of Stephen Herod Buner and incorporated a lot of herbs and those sorts of remedies into my regimen. And I also you have a, sorry for interrupting, but do you have a top couple of herbs that you would, that really speak to you that have worked for you personally? I know it's different for everyone. Right. But just a couple tops. And if you don't, that's fine. But oh yeah, no, it, it is absolutely a good question. Um, my very first favorite herb is cystus tea, which is grown in Sardinia. And 
It's very good for microbes and it's also helpful with mold. Um, it's believed that it's one of the things that helps people to live so long in that area of the world and they live very long and healthy lives. There's many reasons for that, but yeah. um, it is believed that cystic tea is one of them. Um, and I liked it because it was more gentle. I didn't have really intense Herx reactions from it. Um, like in terms of treating the microbes specifically, I also um, had great success with Japanese knotweed and also cat's claw. Um, you know, and then I did a lot of just supportive things because as you know, your body gets thrown way out of whack. So you've got to correct everything. You've got to correct your gut. You've got to correct your B vitamins, um, your D vitamins, um, you know, your endocrine system, your hormones, your cortisol, adrenaline. So just just a lot of um, supportive therapies to also just rebalance myself and give give myself the strength, you know, just give myself like the foundation of strength to um, endure the, the the battle and the journey. And yeah, that's, well, it's, it's a lot and it's amazing. And the fact that you were figuring that out mainly on your own is really impeccable. Um, thanks for sharing those herbs as well. I'm sure a lot of people now go research them. Um, I guess out of the less putting in your body, but what you're doing externally, like saunas or going into the hyperbaric chambers, or I, I guess IV is going into your body, but think you're understanding what I'm saying. Yeah. I'm hoping. Um, what what works for you, like baths, Epsom salt, what works for you the most? What do you do every day to, I guess, continue to maintain as well? Yeah. I, you know, yoga. One, yes, yoga. <laughs> um, yeah. Which absolutely is a, was a huge part of my story and my process. And we could have a whole separate podcast all <laughs> about that. But um, one of the most critical things for me was the sauna. Mm -hmm. Um and that played a role in so many different ways. You know, my pain got so excruciating and unrelenting and, and, you know, just to this level where I really had to do something about it because it was unbearable. And, you know, the, the sauna is not an overnight solution, but it was what I needed to like dislodge all of the toxins that had completely saturated my body, um, to start, you know, kind of wringing myself out like a sponge. And within three months, my pain improved significantly. Um, and then of course the sauna is just good when you're, when you're going through a herx, you know, it's really important for detoxing from mold. Um, it's just a good practice in general, like even for healthy people to do saunas here and there. Um, so yeah, that, and that, that was very difficult because you know, thankfully I had a meditation practice because, and I would also just listen to meditations um, because sitting there for, you know, an hour, three to five times a week, or about anywhere from three to five hours a week in a sauna, just, you know, sweating and, and you're, you're, you feel awful, you know, you're in terrible. It is uncomfortable. And I don't think right. that's talked about enough. Uh, like that was something I don't, I had so many benefits from it. And so I keep looking this way because my son is right next to me. Um, but <laughs> I'm like, my, my time. Mm -hmm. But I think I that's it. something that's a lot of these treatments in the moment are not comfortable. And that doesn't mean, and you do really have to listen to your body and what works with your body is what I've learned. And so I think acknowledging to listeners that sometimes 
in the treatment, and we all know herpses, it's going to be uncomfortable. But really having that meditation practice, that mantra, the if you have people around you telling you or just whatever you can do to remind yourself, this is for a bigger and greater reason. And whether it is listening to that meditation for the couple hours you're in the sauna throughout a week. But I think really having those other tools of, yes, we you're going to be sitting there and questioning things. So don't let that happen. Try to take control. Put something on in the back. Speak to yourself. Have that meditation. I think that's really amazing that you really do practice that each time through your journey. I think that's incredible. Um, from there, so what? Where are you now? With like, what? How long did it take to? Because um, you moved to Colorado, and how long have you been there now since you moved back? Let's see. I think it's been about going on eight years, um, and. It was, wasn't, oh, one second. Little doggy, support animal, love the little pup. <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> we got a friend on the, on the podcast. <laughs> and he's grumpy. Oh, um, I love it. <laughs> it. It was a journey, you know, um, because I, I treated the Lyme and the other um, microbial infections. But it turned out that mold was a big player for me. And that was a bit more tricky to figure out, um, you know, not only how to get mold out of my life, but the treatment's pretty brutal. But to be honest, treating Lyme and the other infections prior to the mold kind of geared me up for it. So that when I went through that, it was kind of like old hat by that time, you know? <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> um, so... It took quite a while. And, and as you had mentioned, lots of trial and error, just, you know, really struggling to maintain hope a lot of times. And, you know, when you have like the good moments, you get a bit attached to them and you kind of think, oh, I'm in the clear, I'm out of the woods. And then that would last for a few hours, maybe a few days, you know, and then you'd be plummeting maybe even worse than you were before. So um, also just just maintaining like hope, you know, and, and determination. And I think a big part for me was, was once I got to this level of acceptance, because probably for at least the first year, I was um, in some kind of like resistance, you know, you don't want to accept really what's going on. And of course, I had been told by lots of internet research and by my doctor that it would be easy, that it would be a quick, treatment and I just be like on my way, like on with my life. And that just wasn't the case, you know? So it did take, um, like taking a big step back and, and just continuing to try things and rotate things. And of course, finding the right doctor was a huge, huge piece. And so coming with that, um, I guess for me, it's, and for everyone to, summarizing i guess what treatments work the best and would you have done them in a different order would you have if you knew what you knew kind of now so i just dropped my glass um would you do it in a different order how would you approach this in a different way if you could if you would what would i guess your different steps be if so yeah you know i think for me everything worked out the way that it was supposed to. 
Um, I, I call them miracles. Um, I had lots of miracles along my journey. And the first was that I started a life of healing and started incorporating healing practices into my life before I started the mold, the Lyme treatment. So that kind of geared me up because it helped me to endure the treatment much better than I would have otherwise. Um, and then, of course, I addressed all of the microbial issues, and it was very um, difficult because I wasn't getting that much better. Like, I got better, but still was really struggling, you know, struggling to just do basic functioning. Um, and that's when I started treating exposure to mold and also intestinal parasites. Um, I would say, you know, everything for me kind of unfolded as it should have. And I was really fortunate to not have like any disastrous events happen in terms of doing things that were that turned out to just be really, really detrimental to me. Um, I felt like that with everything that I was trying, I was, I was progressing a bit. Um, and, you know, like I did um, ozone therapy. Um, I did lots of herbs, lots of supportive therapies, you know, just taking buckets of supplements, making sure to eat nutritious foods, drink, you know, healing teas with different medicinal purposes. Um, so I would say for me that I don't necessarily have like any type of regret or wishing anything would have happened differently. You know, I probably in hindsight, if I could have connected with the doctor who really, really ended up being the game changer for me, I do wish I could have met her sooner. Um, cause who's to say, you know, maybe I could have come around a little bit sooner. Um, and I do, I do wish that I would have started the mold treatment sooner, but at the same time, I probably couldn't have, because as you know, your, your body can only handle so much treatment. So it was actually pretty good that I got through the microbial stuff before I addressed that because it, it rocks your world. Um, but that ended up being such a contributing factor that perhaps if I could have gotten my arms around it sooner, I could have just felt better sooner. Yeah. And I, you know, I was in a bit denial about it. Um, which I think a lot of people are because mold is another dirty word. <laughs> extremely, extremely common. I would say that we like to live in denial, for, not like, but do live in denial for a little bit. Um, I, I will say uh, thank you so much for sharing so much of that. I'm going to pass it off back to Rick in a second. Um, but I, I do also really relate with what you're talking about when it comes to the path of how things have gone through for you and how it works for each person personally yes there's things I wish could have gone better I'm sure we all do but I think for yours specifically it really does seem like it was kind of that meant to be in the not great possible way but meant to be in the path of having a not great situation and so I'll let Rick take back over and if he has any questions on this but I really do think it's a beautiful way of looking at it of it's meant to be miracles it's, I think that really always that piece of hope, that little flick up, I really think is what a lot of people need to hold on to, remember, and always come back to. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Georgia. It was so lovely to speak with you today. Of course. You as well.
Well, Melina, before before you say goodbye, I I, I was about to say there's more. Have a few things. <laughs> I was like, to, I'm coming uh, back in one more time. <laughs> we, we have we have to we have to connect the, the journey. We now have to connect the 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 balance of your journey to uh, to where you are now, right? Because uh, you were you were a young woman who uh, became a communications professional. Unfortunately, found yourself uh, pursuing that career in dirty, toxic New York City, which unfortunately led to your toxic load and caused you to become more chronically ill. But you did develop your communication skill set, and uh, as you as you got through the you know the journey of your illness, you started to use your communication skill set again. So, talk to us a little bit about uh, you know the types of work that you're doing not just in your own business, which I do want to build out with you, but also um, you're doing some work in the Lyme world as well. So why don't you share that with our listeners? Yeah. Um, so, you know, I had to take about three years off of working, unable to work at all. And then I started to be able to take on a few hours here and there. And I was really fortunate to be referred to work with one of the top Lyme organizations that does a lot of work in the advocacy and uh, fundraising realm and has funded a lot of research and been a pivotal player in a lot of um, changes to legislation and just overall education and awareness. Um, so I helped them with their website and writing um, different articles based off of research that's coming out. So it really has been good for me because it helps me to have my finger on the pulse in terms of all of the new incredible advances in different areas of the Lyme landscape. Um, it also just gave me a sense of purpose and helped connect me to fellow Lymeys and just um, also tapped me into a channel of hope, you know, knowing that there are people out there working tirelessly um, to, you know, help and support and make changes for Lyme patients. Um, so that that was a another miracle, another blessing. I've been, had many blessings on my journey. Um, and uh, let's see, like late 20 or early 2021, I think it was. Yeah, early, the spring of 2021, um, I was just very eager to start putting to practice my different yogic studies and and skills and you know, it had been something I dreamt of doing back in 2017, but had to put the plan on pause. I remember telling the friends that I was collaborating with at the time, I was like, I don't know what's wrong with me, but I can't do this. You know, I'm sick. I'm like, somehow I'm sick. <laughs> um, and I and I couldn't explain to them why or what, but, um, you know, all these years later, I, as I got a little bit better, just well enough to be able to kind of put some programs together and be able to sit upright at my computer for a bit of time. I just started um, teaching meditations to friends and family, and we would get together every week. And we did so consistently for about a year and a half. Um, and that was a great thing for me to do because it was very um, forgiving. Like I could cancel at the last minute if I wasn't feeling well, um, if I showed up feeling terrible and they would just be very patient with me and, you know, just be there to support me. Um, and it also helped stimulate my brain because I was kind of refreshing myself on all these different concepts and um, using them for myself and also to share with this group of people that would meet with me online. Um, so it 
kind of started happening midway through the pandemic. So it also gave us a wonderful way to, to gather despite, you know, quarantines and things like that. Um, and through that, I started then teaching yoga to friends and family. And one of my dear friends who I was teaching to is happens to be an advocate in the Lyme space and invited me to teach for one of her support groups, um, a Colorado-based support group. So I got to teach a group, a couple of groups of people. Um, and then that kind of, you know, snowballed. And I, I always planned on on having a yoga business and I was starting to develop this idea of, of teaching yoga specifically for people with chronic illness and, you know, even more specifically Lyme disease, because that's like the community that I come from. Um, but um, I kind of had to get things buttoned up a little quicker because things just started happening. Um, and I actually like had to have a website. I had to start implementing some processes and like scheduling and get some group classes on the schedule because things just kept progressing. Um, so now, you know, I have like a, a Facebook page and Instagram. I'm, I'm connecting with new students all the time. And um, yeah, like, you know, I've now launched a little online yoga business called Soul Tribe Yoga Collective. Most of my students are dealing with Lyme disease. Um, most of my students happen to be based on the East Coast just because you know, that is where there's such a large population where it's such an issue, but I do work with students nationwide. So I have students in several states and the yoga is just very, very, very gentle. I've just taken my experience and um, a lot of what I learned through my own journey, as well as the different studies that I've undertaken to create something that is just very supportive and very healing. And, you know, many of us are not only dealing with the physical symptoms, but we're dealing with a lot of stress and overwhelm. So a lot of my techniques are also designed to just really help people cope with that component of, you know, this, this battle that we're facing on a daily basis. It's really beautiful the way you've taken this very challenging set of circumstances that you had to manage and you're now serving the community in two capacities. One purely as a communication professional where you're helping one of the top Lyme disease organizations in the world to communicate with other people uh, that need their help. And then you're also using your communication skills and you're coupling them with, uh, with your passion for yoga and the experiences that you've had through using yoga to help you both physically and emotionally overcome these challenges to now help other people. And this has really become the very definition of who you are now, somebody who is a healer by using her communication skills um, in, in two different uh, two different arenas. Absolutely. Yeah, everything really came full circle. And, you know, I, I absolutely love what what I'm doing looks like. And I'm, I love the people that I'm connecting with. And, you know, we all have different circumstances and our stories are unique, but as Georgia had implied earlier, like we're all, this journey also connects us. And we also, there's a lot of overlap and a lot of things that we can understand amongst each other because we've actually shared the experience. Um, so it, it really has come full circle and I'm um, just really excited and um, eager to continue the journey. 
And it's really exciting, again, as, as somebody who's just been blessed to sit on the outside and watch you watch you heal, um, is that you've also become you've also become someone who understood that uh, that being alone uh, only enhances the disease and makes you more vulnerable. And you've also now become someone who is bringing people together uh, and and creating a supportive environment, knowing that that's what's necessary to heal. So that's just a, another beautiful part of uh, you know your 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 beautiful journey. So uh, yeah, thank you for all of all of that, all that you're doing, and thank you for sharing all that with us. And uh, with that, you've been kind enough to spend almost two hours with us. So we are going to uh, wind down. Um, and uh, and 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 again, it's another tribute to how well you're doing, both of you, uh, because you've been both very very sharp and very very capable, despite spending a couple of hours together talking about this. Right? It really is uh, really is wonderful that you're you're both so far along in your journey. And with that, George is going to ask you the final question. Uh, the, the yes, very I am. Of this very long, uh, very <laughs> long and very beautiful uh, uh, podcast. Agreed. Um, I think the one I'm actually going to target this a little bit more to a certain, but certain kind of community, young women and just women all around. We definitely already live in a world of being shamed, guilted, judged, questioned. If we act certain one way, we're always labeled. And I like how you use those. We already have a couple dirty words working for us now we also have mold lime etc what would you say to i mean any just someone who's it's not even women i guess but it could be people who are really struggling with the outside world telling them even when they've got a di their diagnosis even when they've come on podcasts like this or really heard that confirmation how do you not question yourself? And it's a big question, but if you have any little tips that you stand by that you don't, that help you not let the outside world re-question that trauma, re-trigger, that's my biggest question there. Well, what would you tell your younger self, I guess, even living in New York? Great question. Um, many layers to that. Sorry. It was oh, no. one. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Um, you know, it is very tough um, going through this journey, possibly being alone, possibly be, being surrounded by people who doubt you and criticize and judge you. Um, even, even if they have the best intentions, that can still come across. But I think that we need to remember that we know ourselves the best, better than anybody, no matter what anybody else may say. We absolutely know ourselves. And I think that's, you know, one thing that this journey can be, it is, it can be a journey through yourself and getting to know yourself even better. Um, you might discover parts of yourself that you never knew before. And you're actually probably going to have to work through a lot of parts of yourself that you don't like. Um, but as we peel back the layers, you know, we get to our core self, our core beliefs, we know what's best for us. And it can be very, very tricky. But in this day and age, because we've got, um, you know, tools like Zoom, we've got different organizations doing mentorships and support groups and that sort of thing, find even just one person who can support you right. You know, you don't have to have a ton of people, but if you can find one person 
who can support you properly and adequately and sincerely, that can really make a huge difference for you. And if it's not someone you know, try to seek them out. I know it's hard. You know, you're exhausted. You're, you might just be lying in a dark room um, in silence. When you can, go to the internet and go to something like Meetup or, you know, look into LymeDisease.org or Global Lyme Alliance. You know, there's so many organizations and just see what they have going on. And just, you know, it might take some trial and error. You might first find some groups that aren't the right match. You might find a mentor who doesn't understand or is not the right fit, but do your best to keep going and see if you can just find one person who can, you know, really um, have empathy and compassion and understanding and who um, pushes you in the right direction and is supportive of your journey. And at the same time, you know, I know it can get exhausting having to educate others because there's a lot of ignorance out there about these things. And, you know, yes, to some degree, it's not their fault, but everybody needs to try a little harder. <laughs> if we can all just try a little harder, we'd go so far. Um, but at the same time, have a little bit of compassion for them as well, even though it can be really hard because it can be very frustrating and, you know, bewildering. <laughs> with some of the things that people can say <laughs> and do. <laughs> that was a very, very good response to a very big question. And I loved it. Thank you so much for sharing your mind. Uh, so that, that, is, that is the perfect way of ending this podcast with the perfect question and the perfect answer. So, Georgia, thank you for serving as my co-host on this edition of the Tick Bootcamp podcast. And Melinda Pastori, I, I can't thank you enough for spending uh, so much time uh, and sharing so much of your journey with uh, the good folks here uh, in the community known as Thick Boot Camp. It was so wonderful to sit down and have this conversation with you. I could, I could do it again. Let's, let's have another one <laughs> tomorrow. I will, we'll definitely have to have a follow up. Maybe we'll make the follow up a a more yoga focused uh, uh, podcast. That would be so fun. Beautiful. <laughs>